the 28th President of the United States of America. You might not know who he is by number. You probably do know him as one of the most famous of all presidents. He led this nation in one of the most difficult times in our history. The sinking of a passenger ship with United States citizens pulled the United States of America into a world war. World War I. This president had prayed long and hard for a united nation. And a united nation's idea called the League of Nations, which he had worked and labored for. He believed in global activism. A progressive thought for his day. He was educated at Princeton. He uh, attended school at Davidson his freshman year where he played baseball. And then he went on to Princeton, received his degree, returned back to the South where his father was a pastor. And he began to study. Uh, he began to study in law. His frail health caused him to leave law school, go to Georgia, be accepted as a partner, pass the Georgia bar examination and become a lawyer, which then he quickly realized he needed to be further educated and went back because of his love of government and his love of serving the society which he lived in. He went back and received his Ph.D. in history and political science. The man I speak of is Woodrow Wilson. Many of you know him. Some of you might not. It would be good to freshen up on American history. It's a good thing. Don't be scared of it, kids. It tells us where we came from. And it also can show us the traps which we might fall back into. So study hard. Study hard. Teach your parents something about United States history. Why do I talk about Woodrow Wilson? Well, it's not because he loved cars, though he did love cars. His favorite was a 1919 model convertible. He rode in it often after retiring from the presidency. It's, it's, I'm not talking to, him, to you about him because he loved baseball, though he did. Though he wasn't the greatest player, he did make the team at Davidson. He could not make the team at Princeton, which makes me think he wasn't much of an athlete, unless they are much better athletes then than they are now. But he loved it. He became assistant manager there of the baseball team. And he was the first sitting president to attend a World Series ball game. That's not really why I want to talk to you about Woodrow Wilson. He was a brilliant scholar. He was a brilliant man. I don't agree with him on all points. Trust me. Many of you don't agree with him on all points. But he was brilliant nonetheless. And he was, I believe, good-hearted in his attempts to bring about peace. Okay? But that's not really why I want to talk about it. He's a giant among presidents, whether you agree with him or not. He sits in the likes and the rarefied air of presidency. We've had some duds. He wasn't a dud. Okay? But that's not really what I want to talk to you about. After leaving office, being interviewed for a newspaper article, living in retirement, he was asked, thinking, the reporter, thinking this would get him into a discussion about the presidency. He was asked, President Wilson, what is the office which you revere the most and you're so thankful that you held in your lifetime? Softball, right? Underhanded pitch, knock it out of the park, the presidency, the most powerful man in the world. Not Woodrow Wilson. Without batting an eye. He said, the highest office to which I've ever been called and been most privileged to serve is as an elder in the Presbyterian church. I was called by my God and my Lord. 
the highest office to which I ever served or was called was the elder of a small Presbyterian congregation in the south of the United States, not the presidency. And that's why I used him to open up this sermon about pastors. Because I believe, not because I am a pastor, but it humbles me every day to think that the eldership of God's local church is the highest office, the highest responsibility on the face of the planet. The desk which I stand beside and preach behind is the most sacred of desks because it holds God's Word, which is a light to our feet and a guidepost to our path. There's no higher place. It's not about the men, their character, all that much. It's about God. The reason it's the highest and most sacred office is because of Him who sits on the throne. It's because of the good shepherd. Peter calls him the chief shepherd. The shepherd of the shepherds. That's why it's the most sacred and most honored and most really powerful office in all the world. We've come to a moment of importance here at Grace Fellowship. Many people ask, what's the surest mark of a godly church? How can I know if the church I attend is healthy? Well, I believe there are several marks. And Mark Dever, I might recommend to you his book and his work on nine marks of a healthy church. It's a beautiful work. And they're they're all concise and they're there for us to read. And I believe each of them is very important. But I want to hone in on one in this introduction to say, I believe a healthy and a godly church uh, is... One, one of the greatest signs is that that church produces men and women for the service of God in His kingdom. It produces missionaries. It produces pastors. In our day, we count numbers. We often count numbers. In our culture, the popular numbers to count are the people in the pew on a Sunday morning or the number we've baptized in a given year, especially in our background and from our background, we count baptisms. And though those numbers aren't bad... Those numbers are good and they are indicative of the church in some ways. They're not the best way to measure the greatness and the health of a church. The best number I know of for that is the number of pastors over the history of the church, that church, which are now serving in the kingdom. The number of missionaries which are now sent by God from that church all over the world for His glory and for His kingdom. A church that's baptizing people, and then not continuing the process of discipleship, we'll be baptizing those same people over and over again and bumping their numbers. The people who are counting the people in the pews don't know if they're counting saved or lost. And you can draw a huge crowd by any magic and circus trick you care to put out. That's not the point of God's church. God said, through His Son Jesus Christ, I will build my church. So, therefore, the worry of how many people will attend a local congregation is really not the point. What is the point? What has He given us to focus on? Discipleship, maturity, building each member up into its head through the love of the local body so that they might be like Christ. And if that is happening, my point is, if that is what's going on in the local church, pastors will be raised up. 
missionaries will be raised up. That's the byproduct of a healthy discipling church. It just, it comes out, it flows out. And you have to be intentional, but it happens organically also. It happens organically. So that's why I look at this number, not some of the others. As I think about Grace Fellowship in this regard, my heart is encouraged. In our short history, as I thought about it this week, as a church, God has been pleased to call out two missionary couples from among us in less than ten years. One young lady, and I received a letter about her this week, and I won't read the entire letter, but I want to read just the opening short paragraph. It's a couple of sentences. Listen to this. Dear Pastor Weathers, one crucial dimension of a spirit-filled church is to see God calling out men and women from the congregation to serve Him in missions. To that end, we celebrate with you and your church God's call upon Holly Jinks to missionary service. That is a beautiful thing. That is a mark of a church which, though it is not perfect, is discipling, is working alongside one another to build one another up and, the, and edify one another so that we might be like Christ. And God is doing His work. He's calling from among us. People are leaving to do the work of the kingdom. I, that encourages me. There have been dozens, a dozen, excuse me, of you. I, I counted them up. Uh, I, th I, th I think I arrived at about 13 of you who are members of this church who have gone on a short-term mission project overseas. I've counted, as I've thought this week, another dozen or so who have gone to the Gulf Coast on a home mission project during our existence and worked on two different occasions. And I think about the labor which you have done, your prayers, your work, your discipleship, your dedication to God and His call on your life, and I am encouraged by that. I'm very encouraged about that. That's not even to mention the many, many students who have gone to Beach Project each year to be further trained in how to disciple others. And you've been the conduit by which they might go. You've done that through Christ and His grace. So I see signs of a healthy church which God is blessing. We've also seen three men set apart as pastors, or elders, here in our local body of believers. Three men, uh, over time, have come to this high office in this lo local congregation. And today and next week, we're going to be adding two more to that number. Why does that excite me? Because for the most part, those are homegrown. They're, they're, they're not the product of a great nationwide search for pastors. But rather, it's God working among you in you and through you. And He's calling His men to Himself. And so I see this as a great mark of God's work in us and through us. God, in His providence, has seen fit to give us these two extra or more pastors to labor for His kingdom here in Calhoun County and around the world. I see this as a sign of health. I told, I told them the first time we met together, all five of us, I said to Dave and Bruce I, and to the other guys, I believe this. That for some reason God adds pastors when He plans to grow the ministry of the church. I don't know what that growth will look like. I just believe in my heart when He adds pastors, He does it because the ministry is about to kick it up a notch. And so I'm excited and anticipating. That's not pressure on them. That's just saying God's going to do that. And I'm excited about that. And so 
As I look at this, and as I think about the office of elder, I can't help but turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I want you to turn there with me. And I want to look with you at six qualifications, abilities of the man who's called to this task. And I continue to say, man, I know very intentionally. Pastors in local congregations are to be men. Not because we're chauvinists, but because God has intended that for His church. My daughter on the way home, Hannah Grace, said, I want to be a pastor one day, Dad. Almost wrecked. A liberal among us, you know. I said, uh, well, honey, you know, you can't be a pastor. You can't be a pastor. I know for you self-help gurus, I just crushed her little self-esteem. I should have been much more gentle, but I just said, you can't. She looked at me and said, well, why not? I said, because that's not the way God designed it. We'll talk about it more when you're older. But you can't. Well, okay, I'll go to nursing school and be a missionary. Wonderful. Great. Have at it. But they're men. The pastors of the church, the local congregation, are men. And we won't get into all of that today, but just to say it gives order and it gives direction to our church It doesn't disrupt the unity of the family to have men as pastors because men are also the pastors of their individual homes. Can you imagine the dichotomy and the conflict that would be for a man to sit while his wife was the pastor at church and he was the pastor at home? That would be very confusing, very disruptive. And so for order's sake and for Christ's sake, this is the way he's intended it. And some of you now that we've turned there and you're scanning the passage quickly, You're beginning to say, well, this one's for Bruce and Dave. I'm going to do my grocery list this morning while Carlton preaches to these two guys. Because they're all going to become pastors. That's great. I'm I'm a woman. I'm out already. Right? But that's not it. that's, That's not the thing. Everyone in this room needs to focus in on God's Word and to it being preached to understand the qualifications for a pastor. Because in His sovereignty, in His goodness... He has said that the local church recognizes their pastors. He's given that responsibility to you. So, a great conversation at some point is, and what will thrill me, is to have someone come unannounced, unprompted, and say, Hey, can I talk with you? I've been watching so-and-so's life over there for about six months now. I've been praying about it. Have y'all considered that man for the office of elder? He's pastoring. He's shepherding people. He's shepherding me and my family. That'd be a great conversation. I know that's not our tradition. Our tradition, where we come from, that would be very out of place because all the men where we come from stuck their hands in their pocket and felt led. That's a Baptist joke. Not a very good one, obviously. They all felt led. They all felt called. They all, they all had some mystical experience that happened to them. That's not in the Bible. Anywhere. What happens in the Bible is people hear the Great Commission and they know it starts in their home and in their local congregation and they start discipling people, teaching them the Word. What does that mean? Just teaching the Word as you go, as you sit down, as you rise up, as you lay down, as you go about your business. It's teaching the Word to people. And how it works in common life. And and as that happened, the, the church said, that man is a shepherd. When we have a catastrophe, when we have a family in need, he responds. He's a shepherd. When a wolf rises up at the door, he goes and pushes him away and 
protects the flock. That guy's a shepherd. The church sees it and recognizes it and prays over it. So that's why this sermon is for you. Because you have responsibility in affirming the pastors which we're bringing in and reaffirming in your heart and mind the pastors which God has already given us. And if they're not pastors, then we need to have that conversation. And I mean that honestly and openly. If they're not pastors, then we need to talk and we need to pray and we need to seek God about that, where to go from here. Second, each man and woman in the room should be examining their life because all but one of these qualifications is really about all of us. We're going to say these aren't superhumans that become pastors. They're men just like us. And so every qualification except one, and we'll get there, is not technical. It has nothing to do with that. It's all about being Christ-like. And we're going to talk about it. So everyone can benefit in that way. Also, each man in here, though you think, well, I'm not ever going to be an elder, you might be. And God's purpose for you is that you behave as one now. Not that you wait for somebody to come and tap you on the shoulder and say, would you like, I, we're feeling this bowed out, could you be an elder? We're kind of short one. No. Not that a committee would call you at home one night and say, uh, yeah, I got selected for this committee. Can, y'all, can you just pray about maybe being a pastor? I know it's a bother, it's trouble, but just pray about it. No. No. Every man in this room should have the thought, God could possibly be calling me to be a pastor, if not now in the future. I need to, I need to look at what life is supposed to look like for me and live that way. That's the second reason. Third, you as the members of the body are looking for these men. Finally, if you are here and you're lost, this sermon is for you. How can a sermon about calling pastors or seeing pastors be about lost people? Because as I'm preaching and as I'm going through this text, you should be thinking Christ not only came from heaven to earth, He not only took on flesh and blood, He not only lived a sinless life, died an agonizing death, rose from the dead on the third day, ascended back to the right hand of the Father, where He therefore poured out His Spirit on the church to gift it, He ordered it so that the gospel could be preached to me and I could become a Christian. He ordered the church so the gospel would go forward and that's what gives you the opportunity to know Him. You can't come to know Him unless the gospel goes forward. And it can't go forward if there's disorder. And so He has ordered, He has called elders and pastors, He has called deacons, He has called servants among us to bring order to the church so the gospel could go to all the nations and people would be saved. So if you're lost... This is intimately about you. Christ has ordered His church partly because He wants your soul. He wants your soul. So as I preach, you think, this is the Christ who not only died and lived and died and was raised up from the... This Christ ordered the church so I could hear. So it's for everybody. It's not to be checked out on at any moment. Let's stay with it. He's the good shepherd who is caring for all his sheep. Don't you want to know this good shepherd as your Savior? If he would go to such intimate detail in how these men should be living their lives so they might shepherd his church, doesn't he intimately know you? And don't you want to know him? That's what lost men and women should be thinking. Don't you want to come into this shepherd's care? 
if He cares enough to leave instruction to the minutest of details what a life looks like as a man comes into the pasture, He cares for you. He cares for you. That's what you should be thinking. So now, we're moving into the meat of this sermon, and we're going to read the Scripture and simply explain what it's saying. That's what expository preaching is. Just explaining, not inventing. Just explaining what is on the page. That's what we're going to do. So let's read it together, and then let's explain it as best we can, that we might go home with a clear understanding. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So we have the text. Now let's explain it. First thing I see here, first qualification for an elder, for a pastor. Elders must have a God-given desire for the work of elder. I see it in verse 1. Don't you see it? The saying is a trustworthy statement. If anyone aspires, desires the office of overseer, an elder is not made. The church does not nominate elders. The church, as I said earlier, recognizes men who are already shepherding, who already have this burning desire to not only teach the gospel, but teach it and then live it in such a way that they're bringing others along in the process of maturing into the growth and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They have that desire internally, God-given desire. Notice I didn't just say they did it on their own because that often happens. People lust after the pastor. I know that might be strange to you. There was a day when I don't think that was as common, but it's become more common. Because let's face it, pastors are often very respected. Pastors get great opportunities to talk to others, to counsel, to study. Pastors get lots of opportunities to influence young lives. And those are all things that are elevated in some way, even in our public life. Right? The idea of mentoring now is, most church people think that idea came from the world back to the church. No, it came from the church into the world and it's become very popular. So you think, well, I I can do what, what United Way does, what the Boys and Girls Club does. I can do it in my own church with people that are like me. I'd like to do that. I don't have to go down to the poor part of town and deal with people I don't like and don't know. I can just do it here. This is great. I want to be a pastor. Others aspire to the role because they wrongly think it's easy. The pastor only works about 30, sometimes 45 minutes in this church, sometimes an hour, hour and 15 minutes. A week, that's all he does. He just gets up and reads the passage like that and tells us about it a little bit and Everybody says, Amen, pray, go home. That's it. Then he just sits around. I don't know what he does. I'd like to do that. 
that that's some people internally they think that and they lust after the pastor because they think it's easy. Some people do it because of money. Let's face it, there's multi-million dollar pastors these days. And the ones who are multi-millions are well taken care of, well fed. Even in small congregations, they're well taken care of, well fed. So why not take that job? And rarely, it does happen, but rarely in kind-hearted churches does the guy ever get really fired without any money or anything, just kicked out on the street. It does happen. But rarely. It's kind of safe. So there's lots of reasons why somebody might just whip up the desire in themselves. But notice I said an elder must have a God-given desire for the work of an elder. Not the office of the elder, but the work of the elder. He must already be desiring to do the work and doing the work in earnest before he becomes an elder. If not, he will never succeed. You show me a man who's never discipled anyone and he's made an elder, I'll show you a man who won't disciple anyone as an elder. You can't make someone something. God has to give them desire for it. It has to be for the work, not the office. Not the honor, but the dishonor of serving, of being scoffed at, of being mocked. That's what he must be willing to bear as he does the work of an elder. So I see it in the first verse. The overseer. Now I want to stop there because that word overseer is not the word for elder. That's the word, some of you may have it as bishop. And, and, and you think because of our uh, past, the last 2,000 years of church history, you think, well, that's talking about the Pope's right hand men. But that's not true. I want to show you that quickly so that you're not confused. The term bishop or overseer Elder and pastor are three ways to talk about the same group of men. And I'll show it to you, so you don't have to take my word for it. Just turn to Titus chapter 1. Hold your place in Timothy, turn to Titus chapter 1. So we see it in Paul's perspective, okay? Titus chapter 1, just a few pages over, verse 5. This is why I left you, Titus, in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, there's the word, Presbyteroi, excuse me, that you might appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now go down to verse 7. Talking about the same men who he calls elders for an overseer. Bishopric. Different word in the original, but same office, same man. Used by Paul, these two words are interchangeable. Let me show you an even better example from Acts. Hold your place in 1 Timothy, turn to Acts chapter 20. So we see this. Because listen, I know many of you have friends who are not of uh, like-minded churches. They're in different kinds of churches. And they hear you say, our elder, and they think automatically, you're a weird cult. Okay? I know that. I face that sometimes in my own family. Alright? Or we're Church of Christ. Or, Or something else. No, we're just trying to use the terms the Bible uses. It uses elder, bishop, and it uses pastor. About the same group. Look in Acts 20, verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders to the church to come to him. He called the elders of the church of Ephesus to himself to give them instruction. 
I won't read the whole passage. Turn to 28. Listen to what he tells these elders to do. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Do you hear that shepherding term? Pastor, poimen, is a word talking in reference to people would have heard it as a shepherd. He's telling them to shepherd. These elders are to shepherd in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. I thought they were elders. Yes, they are. Elders, overseers, pastors. It's the same office. It's not three groups of people. As a matter of fact, in the early church, this was carried on until about the 3rd century, in the 200s. That's where we begin to see the church stray from this original form into a more, uh, a, a more ecclesiastical higher order, where elders are at the local congregation and bishops are a little higher than them. General elders over the elders is what they became. And now we've seen it codified in the Roman Catholic Church, where we have totally different responsibilities for bishops and pastors, totally different offices. That's not biblical. That's not how Paul would have seen it. And, and just so you know, it's not Paul. I write this reference down, 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter tells, uh, in verses 1 through 4, Peter tells the, the people he's writing to, he tells the elders to shepherd the flock as overseers. He, they don't use them as separate words. They're all the same. Do you see that? I, w- I just want to give you that as a background. So when we see overseer, we see pastor, we see, uh, we see uh, in the text bishop, it's all the same. That's a side point to keep us from being confused when we're reading the text. So he tells us we have to have this desire to be in the office of an overseer. He desires a noble task. It's not the office he desires It's the task, you see it. He desires a noble task. The task, the work, that's what Paul's looking at. Not the pomp and circumstance, not the honor, but the work. So the first qualification is a man must have a God-given desire for the work of an elder. The second qualification is that elders must be godly men because the greatest qualification of an elder is holiness. They must be godly men. Because God requires holiness of them. Now, He requires holiness of all of us. Be holy as I am holy. That's what God said to us. Peter gives us that. The Old Testament gives us that. So we're all to be holy. Remember I said this is not some technical thing I'm preaching about. This is qualifications for all of us as believers in some ways. So holiness. Where do I get that? The Word's not here. No, but look what it says. Therefore, in verse three, uh, 2, excuse me, an overseer must be above reproach. He must be one who stands out in a crowd as a follower of Christ. Not stands out in a crowd as a domineering lord over peons in a church, but rather he stands out among his brethren as one who is following Christ. He is above reproach. Not only with those inside, but later he's going to say he must be that way even among the lost world. But we'll get there. So he must be a man above reproach. The husband of one wife. The reason that he has to be the husband of one wife is because he must be a picture of faithfulness. God is faithful to his bride and he requires shepherds to be faithful to their physical brides. A man who cannot be faithful to his physical bride will not be faithful 
to Christ's bride as He shepherds. It's a character issue. This is not, by the way, keeping people from serving in this place who have been previously divorced. That's not the call. You may personally hold that standard. As a man who has been divorced, you may say, you know, I just don't think I should serve. I just don't want to any way get on the line of bringing a bad name among the people of Christ. I'm going to stay out. I'm just going to love and shepherd people, but not be in the office. That's something you might decide as an individual. But the Bible doesn't forbid divorced men from serving. Matter of fact, may I say this? Some of you are married and you are not faithful to your wife. And so therefore, you've never been divorced, but you are totally disqualified. Not because I said so, but because the Word said so. The Word here means a one-woman man. A one-woman man doesn't have straying eyes for other women. He's not a flirt. I can't tell you how many times I've been around pastor friends or pastors in general at conferences or whatever, and I was uncomfortable because a woman walked by. I was uncomfortable. I'm fleshly. I'm sinful. If I got uncomfortable, it was uncomfortable. That's not faithfulness, guys. That, that as a lifestyle, as a pattern, disqualifies a man. Not a one-time instance. I'm talking about a pattern, a lifestyle. Paul says, you're out. There are many good men who are sitting out because their church takes this passage wrongly. And that, that same church has men who have never been faithful to their bride. Not once. Not since they got married 50 years ago. They've never been faithful. And I think Paul, if he were alive, would go to that church and say, that man is making a mockery of Jesus Christ. And this poor man should have been serving 20 years ago. That's how strongly I feel about it. The word means one woman man, and that's what we hold to here at Grace Fellowship. He desires a noble task because he is a... Man above reproach, he is a husband of one wife, he is sober-minded, self-controlled. I put those two together. means he thinks clearly about a situation and he is able to control his natural desires. I often refer to as self-control, also being filled with the Spirit. It's not self-discipline as much as it is Spirit-discipline. Oh, it takes effort on the man's part, but it is not alone. So, we see here that the qualifications are about his character. A man must be holy. He must be respectable and hospitable. He doesn't need to be a drunkard. Again, some wrongly think this means he can't ever drink. That's not what it says. It says he should not be drunk and he should not live a life of a drunk. And so we get that clearly here. He's not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. I was visiting my home church about four years ago on a Wednesday night. They had a business meeting, which I was very uncomfortable at. And I got even more uncomfortable. Because the man who was pastoring began to berate the church. He began to call names. He began to confront people in public, threateningly, as the pastor of the church. 
it got completely out of hand. Until one of the older men in the congregation, who was a deacon, stood up and said, this meeting's adjourned. And he prayed, and it was it. And I was totally out of, like a fish out of water. He didn't stop. He went and got toe-to-toe with a man in confrontation. Listen, anyone can make a mistake, but as the testimonies about this pastor began to come to the light, this was his life. That disqualifies him. It disqualifies him. You say, well, they probably provoked it. It doesn't matter. They probably deserved it. Maybe they did. That's like abusing your children and then saying, well, they, they threw their toy across the room for the fourth time and I told them not to. I gave them what they had coming. A shepherd does not beat the sheep. A shepherd is merciful. He's loving. He's kind. He's gracious. Even when he is provoked, he stays out of provocation. He backs away. Not because he's a wimp, not because he's afraid, but because he has high thoughts of Christ and high thoughts for his sheep. And he would not hurt them in any way. Now, he might need to confront sin, but that's totally different than picking a fight. He goes with love and gentleness. That's one thing. He goes with a fight and brawling attitude. He's not an elder. He's not a shepherd. He is disqualified. He can't be a lover of money. That, that holiness talks about the fact that he must be one who stays out of the love of money. doesn't mean he can't receive money, compensation. Paul teaches he should actually be allowed to take compensation as one who cares for the people. But that's not what motivates him. That's not where his heart is. He doesn't, as Ligon Duncan says, he doesn't use God to get his things. He uses his things for God. Did you get it? The lover of money uses God to get things. He becomes a better preacher because he wants more people so he can have more money. He goes and visits the sick because he wants them to love him and give him gifts. He doesn't go to God on their behalf in private because that doesn't get him any reward. No one sees it. No, the great pastors, men like D.L. Moody, have worn out carpets praying when no one knew they were working, when no one knew they were praying. Their lights didn't go out late at night, not so that others might see it and give them a reward, but so they might well serve the Master and His sheep. Third, elders must be able to teach God's Word for the purpose of raising up disciples. That's the technical, the one technical qualification. They must be able to teach. What does that mean? It doesn't mean they have to be comfortable behind a pulpit. It doesn't mean they have to be the greatest pulpiteer or preacher or presenter. It means that they must be able to walk with you in life and bring you to Christ-likeness through the teaching of His Word. It might happen over coffee. It might happen on a fishing bank. It might happen in your place of business. It might happen in any form around the clock. No particular location. There are pastors who are gifted to stand behind a pulpit or behind a lectern and teach. There are others who are totally lost there. They do it when they're asked, but they're great at leading people to Christ, teaching them to love Jesus, showing them the Word of God. 
So they must be able to teach to raise up disciples. Fourth, elders must have homes that are in line with the truth of the gospel. We see this qualification in verse verse 4. They must manage his household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if this is why, because you say, well, what does that matter? Because if he's not able to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Here's the thing, men. You are shepherds in your home. say, I'm not a pastor. Yes, you are. How many people live under your roof? You are the shepherd of all of them. If a man can't do that shepherding, he won't do well with a bigger flock. You say, man, I just can't manage my five children. Then you can't manage 155 people. At the young age, at least, the children revere you, respect you, and want to follow you. So if you can't get those people to follow you, you can't get grown adults and teenagers to follow you. Trust me. Right? So, we know a man is qualified in some ways because his home is in order. His wife is respectful. We won't get into that. I could open the floor up and we could all tell stories on pastors we know. That's not the point about how their wives were out of control, their children were a disgrace. That's not the point of today's message. What I might say to you is, what if we open the floor up for someone to talk about your family? What would their report be? He manages well, or he has no semblance of control in that place. And so it's very important. It is a qualification. Five, elders must be mature to avoid the pitfall of arrogance. In our day, it's very popular to throw a man into a congregation when he's young and on fire and he's evangelistic and he gives a good testimony and make him a pastor. And in six months, a year, six years, he's totally disqualified because of moral failure. And then we scoff and laugh at him and kick him out. And we did it to him. The next rock star that professes Christ after some concert and then we'll put him on a world tour with some evangelist. And he'll be talking about Jesus. Don't be surprised when that same rock star rises up in six months and denounces his faith and goes back to living a wild lifestyle because he becomes arrogant and prideful and the devil leads him away into a snare. And he falls and it's over. Many young pastors are snuffed out in the prime of their ministry for this reason. They should have been put on the sideline to learn and watch for a few more years. And it would have went better. It would have went well. The kingdom would have been blessed. Instead, disaster. For him, for his family, for the church, for Christ, disaster in that instance. So be patient with them, Paul says. Don't rush them. Give them time. This also speaks to the fact they should show a lifestyle of discipleship over time before you make them an elder. Finally, elders must be a good, of good reputation with those outside the church. For the sake of evangelism, I, I know it doesn't say evangelism, but look at verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. How will a man who calls himself a pastor who is not respected by his co-workers share his faith, much less even talk about his sermon from the day before? 
if he's not well thought of by those he works alongside, if he doesn't have a work ethic there, if he's not a man of integrity, if he's, if he's not a one-woman man and they see it in his life, if he's the first to leave, the last to get there every day, they take notice, and when you speak about the gospel, they just write it off. I'm so thankful for our elders. They are my elders. All of them are my elders. I'm, I'm the youngest, and chronologically, and in many ways, I'm, they're my elders because I need shepherding. And I watch their lives. And I don't want to make them uncomfortable. You watch their life. But I will just tell you, we're blessed to have hard-working men who love Christ. Who don't only work hard in pastoring, but they work hard in their daily work. They are examples to me. You know, we have a late elders meeting, and we do have some late ones. Ask our wives. And they stretch on, and they say, what did y'all talk about? Then we can't tell them. That makes for a great conversation when you get home. But we don't tell them because, you know, we don't want, you know, some things you just don't talk about. Privacy and all. And we stay sometimes. Sometimes it's been 9, 10, 11 o'clock. The clock goes off for me, 4.30, 5 o'clock, and I want to say, reset it to 7. Reset it to 7.30, 8 o'clock. Just take it easy. And then immediately comes to mind, Aaron's not allowed to do that. Carlton's not allowed to do that. Now Bruce and Dave, they all have to rise early even if we stay late. And it's a testimony to me. And so I rise. You say, well, that's a pitiful reason for getting up. Well, sometimes you need pitiful reasons. But I thank God I have that. When I want to moan about how hard it is, I think about them, the way they sacrifice day in and day out for you, for Christ. I'm the least. They are the example. And I'm thankful to have two more examples. To come alongside, to shepherd, to glorify, to bring honor to Christ. And I hope you are thankful. I hope you are. I hope as you've looked at these qualifications, you say all of these men fit these qualifications. And there's two more that I think of immediately. There's another one I think has that potential. I need to pray for that young guy because he could do it. God may be calling him. I'm going to pray for him for years so that God will make him a pastor. Can you imagine an ordination service like next week and you've prayed for a young man for 10, 15, 20 years and then he's standing here. And you say, I was part of that. I saw it when he was 20. He's 40 now. They're just getting to it. I saw it. God showed it to me and I prayed for him and God did it. It's an answer to prayer. It's a praise and an honor to Him. I ask you for this, that you pray for these men. I can tell you they are praying for you. Faithfully. And I'm asking you to pray for them. Pray for them daily. Pray for them week by week. Pray for them when you don't feel like it. They need your prayers. I ask you to befriend them. Be their friends. It's lonely sometimes when you're always the one trying to be the friend. Be a friend to them. I ask you to see their sin and rebuke them as fathers. Go to them gently and say, I love you too much. 
You're struggling. How can I help you? Love them that much. Care for them that much. They're not superheroes. I ask you, I ask you though, to not be a fault finder. When you see them fail, give them grace. Extend them grace. We're not perfect. They're not perfect. They're going to fail. They're going to fail you. When you need them the most, extend grace. Extend it. Because He has extended it to you. And so, here are the qualifications and here are some responsibilities. Let's do it this week. Let's spend that time faithfully praying. Let's spend that time extending grace to one another. Let's become the family, the flock God has made us to be. He will do it. He will be faithful. Let's be faithful. Let's pray. Father, as we've looked at Your Word, as we've looked at the text, as we've thought through the different things there... That...